Well, as I said, the whole purpose of this series is to give a clarity of identity about who we are as a church. One of the things that's happened over the last couple of years is our elders and some of our leaders on staff have gotten together and recognized that a lot of you are brand new. Many of you came on the backside of COVID. This became your live stream, church home. You're welcome. And, uh, and we were glad to join you in your living room. But then you were like, okay, when, when it reopens, I'm going to come in person. And many of you did. And then a, a lot of people just invited friends over the years. And so we've gotten together as a leadership team and said, we need to be able to clearly articulate what it means to be a member of this church. That's one of the most common questions. And our process is very informal and, and noncommittal. It's just sign a sheet of paper, give some money, join a group group and, and make sure you're serving on a team, but no one's ever really going to check on whether or not you're actually doing that. And you just kind of call yourself a member of the church. So we started brainstorming some new ways that we can go about formal membership. But then we realized, oh, we can't really take those steps until someone steps up in front of our church and clearly articulates who we are as a church. And as we looked around the elder table, it was pretty obvious who that was going to be. It was like, that'll be you, Miles. um, You need to say, who are we as a church? And try to name out loud the realities that a lot of us are walking in. So I'm going to say this every week as way of reminder. This is not a vision series about the future of our church. This is not me as your leader going, hey, if we do this and this and this, then I believe God's going to do this. And five years from now, church could look like this. That is not what this is. Nothing necessarily wrong with that. I don't really prefer that because I don't think, I I don't necessarily think vision casting from a leader and, and trying to get to projected outcomes is the way to lead a church. I think God's presence is still cloud by day, fire by night. Holy Spirit, reveal it along the way. And we're going to lean into you. We talked about that last week. And so more than I want to talk to you about where we're going, I want to talk about where we are. And, and not just where we are, who we are. These five things that you see behind me on the screen right now and that you see in our lobby on the way in, if you're watching online, maybe you'll see it in just one second, are not things that we're aspiring to be. They're realities that you already walked into. This is not who we're hoping to become on Hamilton Road. This is who we are at Airport Road, in Homewood, in Rosewood Hall, at a bank in Huntsville, Alabama, at Newwater Farms in Lake Martin, and wherever our extended family joins us from. So last week when we talked about the presence of God, we just established that, hey, at the end of the day, this is all about being near God. The goal is God. The strategy is more of God, if there is, if you want to call that a strategy. Like this is a relationship with the God of the universe, not a business or a system where we funnel you into church involvement. This is God. We want your glory on display, and we want to go deeper into who you are. And if we're going somewhere and your presence is not going with us, we don't want to go. So if, if you missed last week, that's really fundamental and foundational to who we are as a church. Now we're, we're moving into some more distinctive things about Auburn Community Church. And of the five, my personal favorite is today. Part two of ACC is, is ACC is about Jesus-centered zeal. Jesus-centered zeal. Can you look at somebody next to you and say zeal? Zeal. It's fun to say. Sounds like veal, but it's not. It's zeal. That was funny to one person on this side of the room, but we'll see if laughter breaks out throughout the day. I'm going to try it again. I'm going to try it one more time at the 945, and then the next two maybe slowly make adjustments. The word zeal, defined, means great passion, energy, or enthusiasm toward a cause. Now, 
we need to define zeal, but we need to continue to say it's not zeal that is a value of Auburn Community Church. It's Jesus-centered zeal. Because zeal is one of those things that can very easily become misplaced. In fact, among Jesus' disciples, there were a few zealots who were a part of the Jewish order that literally felt like it was their responsibility from God to be soldiers who took out the Roman army because of oppression. They saw violence as the way the kingdom of God was going to break into the world. And so when Jesus dropped the Sermon on the Mount, some of the zealots among Jesus' crowd had to be going, oh, wow, we totally missed what the kingdom of God is all about. So it's possible to be zealous and be far from God's heart. You got to make sure your zeal is Jesus-centered and about things that are aligned with Jesus's heart. And I believe this is very true about our church. If you talk to anyone in the community or anyone who's been a part of our church for any given amount of time, this word will probably come up. That is a zealous church. You're around their gatherings for a little while, and you can feel the energy, the enthusiasm, the passion they have for the God that they are worshiping, and that is not an accident. That is by design. Part of that is uh, my personality. I remember feeling this as a college student when I've been following Jesus since I was 13 years old. I was in college, but I started looking around at the local church I was a part of and feeling like, man, this is really strange that people who are the most on fire for God kind of stand out. I don't know if you notice this or if you're from the Bible Belt or if you were in a church environment like this, but I'm in college kind of looking around going, hey, it's kind of weird that I'm actually pursuing God to the level I am, and a few others in the church are, but it, it stands out as strange. And then I read two books that changed my life forever, Crazy Love by Francis Chan and Radical by David Platt. I dare you to read those two books back to back and see what you think about your own Christianity, by the way. It'll, it'll shake you up. And so I'm in college reading these things and sensing from other leaders, whoa, I know I'm, I'm, I'm like way too young to be leading in a church, but certainly it, it feels like what's being said is, is felt and maybe it shouldn't stand out as much for someone to be a radical follower of Jesus. Maybe that's the norm. And so one of the challenges of Crazy Love, if you read it, is Francis Chan tells you to read the New Testament objectively and what he means is try your best to delete everything you heard in Sunday school, even though a lot of it was good, everything you heard in youth group, everything you heard growing up, just read Matthew all the way through Revelation and ask yourself, what should the local church look like? And not that we should look like the book of Acts. I, I, I believe in organized church and in evolving methods. Those are all important. I, I don't think we should all go back home and all split into different homes. That's not where I have landed. But when I read it, I was like, well, at a minimum, I believe it is the responsibility of every believer to be zealous and passionate about the things of God. And I know I just said that this is a personality trait of mine because I can be loud, a little bit dynamic, and, and I'm a, I got an Italian background, so we're just loud by nature. Like, this is my average voice right now. So there's a tendency when I say Jesus-centered zeal for some of you to go, okay, zeal is kind of like that personality type, but that's not really how I am. I want to argue today that zeal is actually the responsibility of every believer who claims to belong to the family of Jesus, and I also believe it's not an emotion. It's actually a challenge of the New Testament to keep your zeal sustainable over time and make sure you are stirring up consistently a passion for the glory of God and the things of God and the spread of the fame of Jesus and your own personal passion for intimacy with Jesus. Why do I believe that? Look up here, don't miss this. Because the enemy's strategy for your life and for our church is not 
a drastic decline into atheism. We think, like, the enemy, if he could have my life, I would become a non-believer and an enemy of God. Now, for very few, that's the case. But very rarely is the enemy strategy on the life of a believer, hey, in just a few years, they're actually going to be denying the very thing that they believed in and like posting all over social media about how it's not true. That's probably not going to happen to you in your story. The enemy's strategy is way more subtle, and it's way more aimed at apathy and numbness. Like if he could have his way in your life, it would be that you just become so distracted into oblivion that you can't sense or feel or respond to the presence of God. You're just lethargic, complacent, and numb. And that's his strategy for the church. He would love it if we were all coming in here to check the box that we attended and moving on with our week, which is the exact environment that the vast majority of us grew up in. And so that's intentionally what we're trying to prevent here, but we're not trying to see it as a certain level of volume or a dynamic personality. Jesus-centered zeal is about asking the question, am I taking on my responsibility as a believer to make sure there is still a passionate energy toward the things of God? And Holy Spirit, stir it up from within me, but the vision of today, and I got to tell you, I've never... I, I, I hate saying this because it sounds like I'm exaggerating. I've never been more excited to read two passages of Scripture and talk to you about them because they're so central to my heart and so central to where we are going. Did you bring your Bible at the 8 a.m. gathering? Did you bring your Bible at all of our other locations? If you have your Bible, hold it up. Hold it up. Keep it up if you're single. Everybody else, Bible's down. We've got reshuffling of the guard after Christmas break. Okay. Front row. Y'all are like in the light and can, oh, I say front row and they all go, wait, never mind. <laughs> Turn with me. Watch this, y'all. Two different passages. We're going to go two different passages today. Turn with me to John chapter 2 and Romans chapter 12. Single people, find somebody who can do this quickly without looking at the table of contents. John chapter 2 and Romans chapter 12. I'm going to preach these two passages on top of one another because I believe they, they actually go hand in hand. And we're going to start in John chapter 2, verse 13, when Jesus clears the temple courts. Now, I want to make a confession today. There's times I get in front of you and share stuff that uh, is from the scriptures, and I pretend like I've always known it. But I really just studied it that week and was like, whoa, I never knew that. And then I get up here and say it like, yeah, I learned this, you know, when I was little. And so this is one of those things. I didn't know this until I studied this this week. I plan to preach on this passage, Jesus clearing the temple. But I did not know that John chapter 2, when Jesus clears the temple, is a different scene than Matthew, Mark, and Luke's clearing of the temple. Did you know Matthew, Mark, and Luke cover this scene where Jesus clears the temple the last week of his life? And he says, you're turning my father's house into a den of robbers when it's supposed to be a house of prayer for the nations. Jesus enters into Jerusalem on a donkey, and one of his first orders of business is to stir things up in the temple. He turns over the tables. We'll talk about why he did that. He sends pigeons and doves flying. But in John 2, this scene happens at the beginning of his ministry. And John takes some liberties in his gospel to put some things out of order. So there's a small chance that he could be grabbing an event from the last week of his life and placing it at the beginning. But the reason why you can feel confident that that's not what's happening is because Jesus says things differently. And the disciples' conclusions about this interaction are totally different than the other three gospels. In other words, here's what I learned this week. 
Jesus didn't just clear the temple the last week of his life. He also did it at the beginning of his ministry. You mean Jesus like went crazy in the temple, turning tables and sending animals flying multiple times? I really believe so. Now, now there are scholars who think this is still that last scene and John's just wording it differently because he does stuff like that. But I I genuinely don't believe so. And neither does John Piper. So it's the way it is. Um, John chapter 2, verse 13. Let's read about this scene in the temple. John chapter 2, verse 13. If you're there, say I'm there. It says, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Stop right there. What's happening in this scene? It's the Jewish Passover where Jewish people make the trek to Jerusalem to worship God in light of the events of Exodus where The angel passed over the houses of Israel that had the blood of the lamb on the door and took out the firstborn of every family in Egypt. You know the story. And they remember this by coming to Jerusalem and making a sacrifice. Well, the leadership in the temple were like, okay, if people are going to come from all over, it makes the journey really hard if they got to bring their sacrifice with them. So why don't we just provide the sacrifices for them? But in order for people to come and purchase their sacrifice, if they were more poor, they would purchase a dove or a pigeon. If they were richer, they would get like a full-on spotless lamb. And and there was a whole system based on economic class. But they couldn't buy these animals with Roman currency because the Roman coins had pagan gods on them that weren't welcome in the temple. So what they had to do is they would show up at the temple to buy their sacrifice, and they would exchange to temple currency. But the leadership of the temple thought it'll be a brilliant idea if we just jack up the exchange rate and profit from the margin. So here's what they were doing. They were using the laws of supply and demand. Everybody's coming here wanting the same thing. We'll have what they want. And under the guise of providing for a spiritual need, they were financially gaining from their proximity to the house of God. They up the rate, they're pocketing the money, and on the outside, here's how like, nasty their hypocrisy is. They're pocketing money in a selfish way by on the outside looking deeply spiritual. And Jesus is having none of it. Makes his own whip. Doesn't like bring one with him, makes it. Sends animals flying everywhere, sends tables flying all over the place. They're, 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 I mean, you just imagine how wild this scene is. And I'm like, my phone is like telling me to record this as a workout. I guess my heart rate is out of control right now. <laughs> Sorry, I was not on Do Not Disturb. I rarely make that mistake. Anyway, I'm zealous. Um, <laughs> And the, and the disciples, as they're watching Jesus do this, they're going, whoa, Psalm 69.9, zeal for your house consumes me. I've said before, that's one of my favorite verses in all of scripture. I don't have any tattoos, but if I did, it would be that verse. And be looking out in Hamilton Road in a really cool way for that verse to show up in our new house that we're building down the street for you to worship God. 
zeal for your house will consume me. Watch what happens next. Verse 18. The Jews then responded to him. What sign can you show? Can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So when these leaders have their hypocrisy on full display, they're embarrassed, their feedback to Jesus is, what authority do you have to drive out people in the temple? That word authority, it's this Hebrew word shmiha. It's like, what proof do you have that you have the, the permission from God to do what you are doing? And Jesus says, I'll tell you about my authority. I'm going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. And they're all confused going, it's taken 46 years to put this temple together. What is this guy even talking about? And then John chimes in and says, hey, we didn't know what he was talking about either at the time. But then after he died and came back in three days, we realized that the temple he was referring to was not this building that would ultimately be destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. It was his body that is the new temple. And this is a New Testament reality first introduced in John chapter 2 where Jesus is destroying the old order of things, where if you were seeking God, you made a journey toward a building in Jerusalem that was built to house the presence of God. And the new revelation that Jesus has come to bring is that building has become my body. So now where do we go when we want to draw near to God? To the body of Christ, except his body was buried and raised and then ascended. And now his body goes out through his spirit that indwells believers. And the church of Jesus Christ is the new temple, but it's not a building put in the center of a city. It's the people of God on mission for the glory of God. Church is people, and the new temple is us. And John's going, we didn't know what he was talking about at the time, but now we know. Now, follow this. If you're in Romans chapter 12, I want you to turn straight over there. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 is the go-to passage for how the body of Christ functions as a healthy church. Jonathan Snow on our staff team talked about this passage on Thursday, I believe, at prayer. Haven't those, everybody who's doing a devotional at prayer, it's been so powerful this week. Even if you're joining us online, you got to hear what some of these people are bringing. It's so challenging and so rich. And he talked about how we've all been given different gifts in the body that function different ways. Paul goes off in Romans chapter 12 about how we're all different, but we're grafted into one body and, and all these different functions go differently. But then right after that section, there's this section that begins in verse nine. So we're going to start in verse 9. And I want you to read this and think about what Jesus just revealed in John chapter 2. Paul says, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. In that short section of verses, Paul gives a flurry of 12 different commands. And he's not done. The next verses have more. He's like, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. And the idea is not 
grabbing all of these things and putting them on a list and going, okay, I did that, now I'll do that, I'll do that, I'll do that. He's just giving a picture of what it means for a healthy body to be functioning, functioning in unity with one another. But the driving point of the whole passage is toward the center where it says, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. I actually think this passage is about how to never be lacking in zeal but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. That word fervor in Greek is the verb for boil. It literally means never fail to boil about the things of God. And that is why I can confidently say that as a believer in Jesus and as a church that claims to be all about the glory and the renown of the name of Jesus, being lukewarm is never, ever an option. Believers are called to boil for the glory of God. Being apathetic, it's never a, well, it's just not my, my personality to be that energetic or be that passionate. It kind of makes me a little bit uncomfortable. Christians who understand what Jesus has come to do in our world and through our lives, because of the mission we have been given, apathy and being lethargic about church and about Jesus is never an excuse for an action. It's our responsibility to stir up zeal through the local church in our lives to make sure we're not settling for less than the life Jesus died and rose for us to live. And this is a main marker in our church. It will continue to be, but it's actually something that has lost us people over time. I heard a story about a, a guy who left our church and he, he sent message through a friend, not like to my face, but he said, I love ACC, but it's just too intense. I come and it's just... Sometimes I just want to breathe and relax like this person on this side. Like, so sometimes I just want, I just want some space and I, 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 I don't know. Why does it have to be so emotional and so intense? And I just, I hear that and I understand and I understand there's different dynamics and personalities that lead in different ways. But at the same time, given the evil around us and the mission given to us, how should we sound from stage? Like given the fact that the enemy is lying to people at an alarming rate, mental health is where it is. I heard a story this week about a guy I played high school basketball with. I haven't talked to him since high school. He was an awesome guy, phenomenally gifted. Never would have thought this would be ultimately his story. And somebody Facebook messaged me, of all things, please don't do that, um, and said, hey, this guy took his life last week. His funeral's tomorrow. His funeral is Friday. And I'm going, are you, are you, like I was passionate about the things of God. I was next to that person in a locker room. And we, we, we carry that kind of burden into a space like this. We carry the burden and the weight of knowing this might be the moment somebody's thinking about tapping out and giving up completely. We carry the burden of knowing that marriages are on the line. Some of them seated next to each other right now going, are we going to give this to God and press on or we're gonna go our own way and give up? So yes, our worship and our preaching and our style, if you wanna call it that, it's gonna be a little bit aggressive. 
because we have an aggressive mission and we are actually not conjuring up emotion to make ourselves excited about the things of God, but we're actually sensing the Holy Spirit from within igniting us with a fire that's undeniable if you walk in a close relationship with Jesus. This is holy fire and it's fire that's not related to your last spiritual high or a moment you had in the presence of God. Never be lacking in zeal. It means when you feel like you don't care, you got to do something to make yourself care. When you feel like you don't have any emotion about the things of God, you got to take a step with your body, with your mind, with your practices to reattach yourself to your former passion. And the problem is the vast majority of us only sense zeal for God in fleeting moments because that's what we were trained to do. Now, if I lost you in that little tirade about holy fire, look up here. Because if ever I brought something that I don't want our people to miss, it's this moment right now. We have been trained to feel zeal for X amount of time before we need our next hit of closeness to God. What did we do growing up in church or growing up as a Christian? What did we do when we wanted to have a close experience with the presence of God? We went on a retreat. We got away. We did something different. We we went up to the mountains, we went out to the beach, and we heard a speaker, and we heard a band, or we went to a conference, or we read a new book, or we heard a new song, and all these things, like novelty in your relationship with God is great. Going on trips, like we're all for it. We're going on multiple, literally in the next couple of months with our middle scores, high scores, and our college students. It's all great. I'm all for it. I experience God on them. But I realize that both passages you read about zeal the most prominent ones in the New Testament, namely Jesus' zeal and our responsibility to be zealous as believers, happen in a very specific context. What was the context? The body of Christ being believers who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, namely the local church. And so I think back and I go, we have trained ourselves to stir up emotion for God outside of the church. And we've trained ourselves to need, I need the next Passion Conference. I need the next Hillsong album. I need the next book from so-and-so. I need the next conference. I need some kind of event, some type of thing that I need to tap into in order to feel zeal again. And maybe the reason why, as believers, our zeal is so fleeting is because those moments are. We were never intended to tether our zeal to fleeting moments. We were intended to tether our zeal to one another in a commitment to a local church. And the local church was always seen as the boring place that you have to go to because the Bible says you do. But all the fun stuff happens over here at the retreat or at the conference or at this celebrity pastor's thing or this band's thing, but never the church. The church is always the reject, the neglected sort of family member that you don't really want to invite, but you have to invite. I have to go on Sunday. I have to, yeah, I'm a, I'm a tithing member of a local church because I don't want to go to hell. And I just, I just want to obey God. And ACC's burden is to flip some tables. And the tables we've come to flip are the system that says the church has to be a boring obligation. And when we flip tables, you want to know what tables we're flipping? We're flipping a system that's really about profiting the most popular and on display Christians out there. The reason why you were in a system that was about refilling you with more zeal systematically is because it's lucrative. It makes a lot of people a lot of money, guys. And I'm not out to hate on 
any sort of leader or any sort of like event out there. I'm just saying, why was the local church everybody's like forgetful endeavor? Because it, no one was profiting off of it. And the same reason why Jesus overturns the temples is to go, you guys, uh-uh, this is over. This is over right now. I believe that the local church has to become the space where believers aim their zeal. And not at a, not at a sermon or music, but in a commitment to one another. You know, now that our church has grown, you know, the most common question I get, other than what does it mean to be a member of Auburn Community Church, the most common question I get personally is, man, when are you going to... When are you gonna like go speak at this conference, or when, when are you gonna write a book, or when are you gonna take this like outside of your local church? Like God's done something so special in and through you, and I, I'm not saying that none of those things will ever happen, or that I'm against them, but I have a problem with the question because I'm going. See, that's the problem: is that leaders like me grew up believing that it wasn't about a local body of believers being set on fire for the glory of God. It was about something out there. It was about something on social media. It was about clout. It was about influence. What this is really about is about churches, and we're just one of many, but here's what we're dreaming about at ACC. What if God starts a fire here that leads to the success metric in the Christian life is no longer about how big or wide you get on a certain platform, but is about whether or not local churches and individual cities are zealous for the glory of God. That's what we're here to stir up. And if we do it, if we do it well here, who knows? Another guy might be doing it across the world over here. And I've, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm on Zoom calls with guys who are seeing what we're seeing all over the world. Guys whose names you do not know. And guess what? Here's the best part about it. They don't care that you don't know their name. Because the name that they want known is the name who is above every name. What am I saying? This is the whole sermon and probably the most important sentence outside of the Bible I've ever brought into our church. It's this. The local church is God's plan for zeal to ignite and sustain in the life of a believer. The local church is God's plan for zeal to sustain and ignite in the life of a believer. It was never supposed to be about the right content making you feel a magical way. It was always supposed to be about a commitment to one another where we're serving, we're living on mission, we're practicing hospitality, we're praying, we're in the scriptures together. And collectively, as your passion for God starts to wane, and as your fire starts to reduce to embers, and as the gas that was once poured on the fire just, just nowhere to be found, here's the powerful thing. Our community with one another is what sustains the fire. Because when I come in here, particularly at six o'clock in the morning on a weekday, I do not feel passion for God. I know it feels like I do just, oh, I just flip a switch and feel passionate about God. No, I don't. I walk into a building and y'all are there and I feel passionate about God again. That's what the church is supposed to stir up in us. And it's not about feeling a certain way. It's about not allowing anybody to slip into apathy and think it's okay. It's about not allowing anyone to settle for less than stirring themselves up for the glory of God. I know this one's intense. I know it's aggressive. But if I ever, if I feel strongly about any of these five things, I feel the strongest about zeal for God's house. That the glory of Jesus be the point of the local church. And the local church be the space that you look to remember once again, I've been forgiven by God. His grace is enough. And even if my, my affections are not attached to those truths yet, God wants to use the local church to be the thing, to get it from your mind to your heart. It's one thing to believe and to have your mind renewed by truth, but it's another thing to go, God, don't let this just be something I believe. 
Let it be something that I embody, that I care about with a holy fire for your glory. And if you're going to get that, you don't need the next sermon or the next song. You need the person next to you. That's the whole message. Jesus-centered zeal. How do we do this? I got two points, and I promise I'm done. Are y'all okay? All right, I got to do this four times, so I'm not okay. <laughs> Let me say something lighthearted. Congrats to Maggie and Zade on the second row who got engaged last night. Getting married. I'm so, so excited for you guys, and Zaid, so proud of you. For those of you who don't know Zaid, uh, his father was Mike Power, who um, his, his just story has reverberated through the life of our church, but watching God's faithfulness on your life and on your family even since that day has been powerful, so I can't wait to celebrate you too and love you, and um, yeah, now, now we're going in that direction. I feel emotional about that. I got two points, and then we got to finish, then we got to do this three more times. I love y'all and excited for you. Number one. Reject lukewarm living by staying close to the fire. Reject lukewarm living by staying close to the fire. How do you reject being lukewarm? You got to be near the flames. How do you get near the flames? It's really about proximity. Stay near where the fire is burning. Where's the fire burning? Prayer, the word of God, worship, serving. I could talk about any one of those things, but I want to talk specifically about friendships. Nothing will make you more lukewarm than being around lukewarm people. We'll just stop at that. <laughs> Nothing will make you more lukewarm than being around lukewarm people. If you want to stir up fire for the glory of God, why do you spend so much of your time and energy on people who could care less? And I, I'm not talking about living on mission, because I do believe in investing deeply into non-believers and people who are seeking. And yes, yes, yes. I'm talking about the relationships you have with other Christians who you know they don't care they're not going deeply into the things of God. They've settled for the exact half-hearted cultural Christianity that I'm describing as the thing that we want to vehemently stand against. And you're investing so much time and energy into relationships that are not like stoking the flames of your fire for God. If anything, they're pouring water on it. One of the best ways to make sure you are stirring up an inner fire for the Holy Spirit is being around other people who also are. So yes, live your life on mission and make friendships with people who don't know Jesus. But please stop investing so deeply into friendships, some of you into dating relationships with people who could care less about the things of God. The number one thing I think you should look for in a friendship and in whether or not something is worth your investment in your time is that word zeal. Like, do, they, do they have a genuine zeal and a desire for the things of God? Because if they got that, I want to be around them. And, 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 and it's not that we write off people and it's not that we move on from people. It's that our mission is just too critical and the fire on the inside of your life is too crucial for you to compromise based on proximity to the wrong crowd. Nothing will make you more lukewarm than being surrounded by lukewarm people. And some of you, if you want to burn with holy fire for God consistently, not in a moment, but consistently and sustain in that over time, you're going to have to be around people who stand to live for that the most. One of my favorite things about Auburn Community Church is that we're a church. That was deep. Um, one, of the, one of my favorite things about us is that we're a church. And this, this didn't really hit me until Easter this year. But when we were at Neville Arena, I don't know if anybody caught this. You were probably running to the parking lot to get out faster. But um, Gage was on stage, and he goes, hey, here's, uh, here's what's crazy about this. We just did this amazing th thing at Neville Arena and songs and sermon, and it was so powerful. It was a holiday. 
And Gage goes, but like next week, we're baptizing 50 people. We'd love for you to come and hear their stories. Like what I love about ACC is that it's not a concert. It's not a, oh, come to the thing and see the guy and see the promoted band and see the whatever. No, this is like the presence of God on display. And if this week's not like really meeting your needs spiritually, we'll be right back next week. Actually, we'll be right back tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. And we'll be like, like, I love the consistency. This is why, this is why God made it the local church. Because it's not something that you could put away somewhere. It's life-on-life community in a real city, in a real space, with real relationships. So reject lukewarm living by staying close to the fire. Get near the fire. I'm excited about worship night on Thursday because usually by Wednesday, my fire from Sunday has withered to an ember. And I'm more stressed out about the next Sunday than I am grateful for the previous one. That's what hits me every Wednesday. If there's a day of the week where I would ask selfishly that you pray for me, it's Wednesday. It is my, now watch, I'm gonna get like 50 texts on Wednesday praying for you. Hey, please do. But I'm excited about worship night just because I wanna be near the fire. I just wanna be in the room in case the Holy Spirit does something insane. And where the people of God are gathered together, we know he will. And I wanna be in close proximity to moments like that. And, and, and I want you to make it your endeavor to do the same. Reject lukewarm living by staying close to the fire. Number two, fan into flame by praying for enduring passion. Fan into flame, that's a a phrase from 2 Timothy that Paul commands Timothy to fan into flame the gift of God. It it means like use the fire God has started and stoke it and sustain it and cultivate it. Why? Because fire by nature needs a ton of effort to get ignited, but it also needs even more effort to keep it sustained. In the same way, passion and zeal fades in all relationships, marriages especially. You join your life to someone and you think, man, this feeling, this sensation of love will always be the most natural, incredible feeling ever. And that's the lie that leads to the most amount of people being ruined when their expectations of, hold on, hold on, it doesn't feel that way anymore. It's been a couple of years. Or even for some, it's been a couple of months and it felt so right then, but it doesn't feel right now. A marriage works not by feeling love, but choosing love and the feeling following. But how, how, how does passion grow in a relationship with someone who is fading away? You ask God to give you what you know you need. This could be good marriage advice and it could be good uh, time with God advice. If you're not sensing a passion for your spouse, ask God for a renewed one. You're going to get a yes. When you ask God for something you know he wants to give you and you're his child, get ready for him to pour out the spirit of God. So when you're waning on passion and you're going, I'm just getting so frustrated and this is just, go to God and go, God, I want a renewed passion. And and, and in the same way, in your relationship with him, what do you do when your passion wanes? Go to God and tell him, I don't feel anything toward you. I'm numb. I'm apathetic. Pray like David, renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore unto me the what? The joy of my salvation. If you're ever in a church service or in a one-on-one time with God or anywhere in the world and you go, I don't feel any affection toward God, stop in that very moment and go, God, give me enduring passion for your glory. One of the best ways I can think to do it is to refer God back to a moment where you know he was on you. I can be so numb 
to the things of God because I'm so overexposed to this book and to these songs and to environments like this. I know a lot of you are feeling God just by being in this room right now. I could be in a room of thousands of believers and feel nothing, and I have. But in that moment, you know what I do gently in prayer or patiently? I refer back to a moment as a college student that a pastor stood up on a stage and the words, I want my life to count, pierced me like a sword going through my soul. I sat there and I was like, I don't care. I don't care what passions, sin offers my flesh to be satisfied in. I don't care how much money it costs. I don't care what it costs. Like, I just want to live the life I was created for and make sure my life counts because I got one and I got all of eternity with Jesus. And in that moment, you could not have taken my eyes off of Jesus with every effort you had. But life goes on. And then you're more susceptible to sin. And then you're tired. And then you're busy. And then you're distracted. And so when, there's a, when there are those moments, and they happen to me often, where Jesus feels distant and affection for God is fleeting, what do I do? I go, God, you remember that moment at Georgia World Congress Center where David Platt was on that stage, and he said, I want my life to count. And you know that 19-year-old boy who was sitting right there, what he felt in that moment. God, here's what I need at 34. I need a little bit of that holy fire that you did then, but maybe you could do it even more now because your scripture says, I'm traveling from one glory to another. And so with the glory of God on my face, I want to, with an unveiled face, see you and know you and all of a sudden that apathy is getting stirred up zeal for God again my forgiveness is starting to matter to me again his faithfulness to my life is starting to be on display and I'm going oh somebody better play a song because I got to sing about it and I got to talk about it this is what we're trying to do for y'all every week on Sundays and we're going to continue to as long as we get the incredible opportunity to steward this local church Let's take communion together right now. If you don't have one, you can just slip your hand up. Somebody will bring one to you. If you're not a believer in Jesus, you just want to sit this moment out. Raise it high so they can see you. I know they're walking around. It's a little bit dark in here. They will get to you eventually. I promise. They'll get to you. And through, through a screen, I want to set up this moment for you guys. Every week when we take communion, it's like a physical reminder of a spiritual reality that Jesus' body was broken for us. His blood was shed to give us unlimited access to our Heavenly Father as loved sons and daughters. Let's take communion and stir up zeal for God together. Husbands, please pray over your wives. We'll sing together in just one second, but enjoy this time in the presence of God. And then let's get some Jesus-centered zeal stirred up in this house early this morning. Come on.